Have you gone to a memorial of a friend or someone you don't know very well and thought, oh, I wish I'd known that person better. I wish I'd known he collected fill in the blank. I didn't know she was a pilot. I didn't know he was a poet. They were so generous. You know, I experience this longing each time I prepare and conduct a memorial service. But just as there are too many good books to read, or great movies to see, or podcasts to listen to, there are too many wonderful people to know than is humanly possible. My preface, cutting myself slack. Because I didn't know the young mother who died unexpectedly this week. She was 37, a mother of three, and she was hospitalized mid-April with the flu. She was an early blogger and had developed this huge following. After a month of no posts, her husband wrote on her blog to explain and keep readers apprised of her health as it inexplicably declined. Her doctors had put her into a medically induced coma. So when Rachel Held Evan died Saturday, May 4th, I did not know her name. But my media feed was flooded with comments, quotes, pictures, outpouring of love, and of lamentations. I didn't know who she was, and I've been catching up with much of the world who knew her, knew her words, her books, and most importantly, knew what she stood for as a public religious person. And what she stands for is truth-telling in any and all religious traditions. In other words, she treads along the exact same paths that we at Hope Unitarian are trying to navigate. And now that I've read her blog posts and started several of her books, I see how she not only spoke truths, but with fabulous humor, which may be the core of her power. She started out writing for newspapers in Alabama and Tennessee, not about religion. Then she did a pro bono tour as a humor columnist in Dayton, Tennessee. She comes from a conservative, evangelical, southern church tradition, yet Like many of us here, all of us here, she began to ask questions, hard-cutting questions that were also disarming. She started asking questions writing her blog for more than a decade, and then in her books. Her first book, Evolving in Monkey Town, Evolving in Monkey Town, some of you may be able to put together why that title explores her journey from the religious certainty of her Christianity, evangelical faith, to one that must accept doubt and questioning, demands doubt and questioning. And the book title is based on the 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial that took place in Dayton, Tennessee. 
And it was a trial of seeking truth, dispelling ridiculous pseudo-scientific and pseudo-theological dogma. And this first book of Rachel's picks at the mistaken notion that the Bible is inerrant and the logical fallacies that inevitably follow once you accept that. Okay, this is not news to us. We've held this stance for over two centuries. But we should pay very close attention to anyone and welcome anyone who is following along in our path. No matter how late they are to the party. So Rachel drew a large following in the evangelical community in both, in both progressive and conservative circles. She criticized widespread evangelical support for President Trump, encouraged women in church leadership, and questioned this literal reading of the Bible. She writes, when we refer to the biblical approach to economics, or the biblical response to politics, or biblical womanhood, we're using the Bible as a weapon disguised as an adjective. So she helped crack open the inexcusable belittling of women's roles, encouraging women in church leadership, and an egalitarian approach to marriage. She was talking about misogyny and abuse long before the Me Too movement emerged, and she was affirming LGBTQ relationships on the grounds of her Christian convictions, when doing so would still get you run out of town. Alas, <laughs> some mainline denominations of all the world religions are still debating today this destructive, embedded misogyny and patriarchy. Again, I understand her stances and writing don't sound earth-shattering in this sanctuary and in our religious tradition. And we're not perfect by any means. We still have enormous strides in our own understanding of truth and acting on it. So I'm talking about this former fundamentalist evangelical whose br brilliance has been silenced by an early death because I want to remind each of us of two things. First, this will sound familiar, it will sound like last Sunday, our progressive message is still dearly needed. We do save souls. We must proclaim this over and over again. But the second critical point I want you to hear today is we aren't the only ones taking progressive stands. We are not alone in salvation. We are not alone in truth-seeking. So as a congregation, we are most effective when we don't assume that we're exceptional. When we act as if only the Unitarians or only the Universalists or only the Unitarian Universalists have cornered the market on progressive social justice and inclusivity, ooh, we need to think again. We can come across as prissy and arrogant when we fear soiling our hands 
or debasing our intellect by reaching out to other churches or synagogues or temples or mosques. We are dating and limiting ourselves. If we assume all evangelicals belong in the Stone Age, we're insulting in our insular stances toward other religious traditions. It's a deadly form of intellectual and spiritual pride. We limit our ability to form collaborative partnerships. We limit our capacity to change this world. We limit our capacity to welcome new people who are at different stages on their life journey. So as this church examines its future, as we wish to welcome new people, we cannot just wait for people to wander up the hill. If we're not reaching deeply into our community in joint projects, we're on the sheer path to diminishment and even extinction. Rachel got asked, Rachel Held Evans got asked a lot about how to attract millennials back to the Christian church because she's a millennial. And she began making speeches all over the country, and her most famous talk is called Keep the Church Weird. And what she does is she admonishes all those congregations to stop trying to market themselves with increasing razzle-dazzle lights and slideshows and bands and stop trying to make the church cool. Rather, keep after the slow and steady and in this modern age, maybe weird, traditions that change a person, that change a malignant system, that improves everything around us. Repeatedly, Rachel makes a helpful and necessary distinction between curing and healing. Curing and healing. In an essay, she puts it this way. There is a difference between curing and healing, and I believe the church is called to the slow and difficult work of healing. We are called to enter one another's pain, anointed as holy, and stick around no matter the outcome. The thing about healing, as opposed to curing, is that it's relational. It takes time. It is inefficient, like a meandering river. Rarely does healing follow a straight, well-lit path. Rarely does it conform to our expectations or resolve in a timely manner. Walking with someone through grief or through the process of reconciliation requires patience, presence, and a willingness to wander, to take the scenic route. But the modern-day church doesn't like to wander or wait. The modern-day church likes results. But if the world is watching, we might as well tell the truth. And the truth is, the church doesn't offer a cure. It doesn't offer a quick fix. Rather, the church offers the messy, 
inconvenient, gut-wrenching, never-ending work of healing and reconciliation. The church offers grace. Anything else we try to peddle is snake oil. It's not the real thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't get the word out about Hope Church. Oh, yes, we must. At the same time, we have to look at our traditions and repeated rituals that we do year in and year out. May they remain weird? Do we have a solid grounding of celebrations and thresholds honoring everything from birth to passage into adulthood to marriage to memorials to saying farewell to a beloved staff member who came from us? Do we have spiritual tools and rituals to honor grieving, to support forgiveness, to teach us how to forgive? and to guard against spiritual pride. Are we healing rather than offering a quick fix cure? So I think our flower communion is one moment of grace, like Rachel describes. It models beauty and healing. It's an annual sacramental moment of going out into the world, bringing back one flower, evidence of creation's beauty and variety and joy. And we hearken back a hundred years and a thousand miles away to acknowledge a congregation much like ours who sought a tradition not mired in theological gobbledygook. Norbert Chopik found a way to honor the language of flowers. Spring is evidence of the ongoing drama of creation that we did not create. We can coax it and aid flowers and crops to grow, but... Uh, So much is out of our hands. Spring comes no matter what. Flowers come no matter what. And the diversity of the flowers perfectly mirror our own human assortment and beauty. It's worth repeating. Flower communion sweeps in a heady aroma and a wild mix of colors brought by every age. We bring flowers together to represent our congregation And we bring extra flowers for all who forgot. Perfection is not served here. Being supportive and generous are. So before Norbert Chopik died, killed by the Nazi regime, he influenced thousands of people with the beauty of his words and ideals, including his flower communion. So I hope this ceremony will continue to be celebrated in this congregation and hundreds around the world. It's a testament to the power of love to withstand hate. It represents the vision of a tolerant faith which sweeps the world not by persecution or threats of violence, but by drawing people to its principle with the sweet scent of peace and freedom. Peace and freedom. It has the healing potential over time. What seems most fragile and perishable is actually most persistent and enduring. Humankind working together, justice and charity, 
will ultimately prevail. Happy Mother's Day. May it be so.